Hello and welcome to the Shimmercast, the spikiest podcast in Eternal. I'm Doc28. And I'm TCG Cthulhu. And we have a lot of stuff to go over, uh, given that we have missed a week of recording. Uh, but we are back. Uh, Cthulhu, how, has, how have the last two weeks been for you? Well, uh, in regards to Eternal, uh, it's been relatively good. You know, holding a top 20 uh, position in Throne currently. And, you know, just trying to grind out uh, Expedition. Still, uh, still getting the hang of Expedition, personally. Yeah, no, for sure. Expedition is interesting. A, a lot of jacks. I was lucky that I got there fairly early and I've just been camping mostly. Um, but yeah, Throne, I was like 300 in Throne like a couple of days ago. Yep, I saw. You're, you're sitting at a 68 right now, I think is what I saw recently. No, I think I, I went up from that, actually. I think I'm like in the like 40s or 50s. I, I basically just like started running even Combray and just was crushing. The Imperial Loyalist Heirloom Blade interaction is really sick. Yeah, it's a uh, heirloom blade. I mean, it was definitely a, a little semi-hyped. It wasn't as hyped as uh, as as probably a lot of people were thinking, but uh, mm -hmm. it does have some pretty neat interactions. It's not played quite a bit, but it is definitely a uh, a useful card. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think before I, I know recently, um, as of uh, yesterday, as of this recording, Scarlatch announced that there's going to be a new set coming next month, like a new, like full, actual, real big set. So before that, I was kind of thinking that maybe the Heirloom Blade thing could be um, really good tech for the upcoming um, Isuki, which we think is Throne. But I get the sense that if that set is going to be part of the um, ECQ, pretty much everything we have to work with is going to get thrown out the window. And there's also probably balance changes and stuff. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into more of that later because it's uh, big news. But our, for our first main topic of the cast, uh, we're going to take a look back at the Expedition ECQ that happened this past weekend. Um, Collector took down this event, very, very deserving finish, uh, with a uh, Skycrag, Chonky Skycrag is what the deck's called, right? Yeah, it's big Skycrags, <laughs> fatty Skycrags, Chonky Skycrags. It's just, uh, I mean, it was a very, very smart meta call. Um, a lot of people predicted that the FTS sack was going to fall out of favor, and for the most part it did. Uh, there was one in uh, top four, which ended up getting second place. Uh, but what is great about this deck, outside of Total Pioneer, if they run it, and Jack itself, none of its units die to Jack. So it's a really good counter for these decks. These uh, Pretty much any deck running Jack or aggro decks, as it has just these big static units that have really powerful uh, ETB effects, as well as uh, offensive capabilities as well. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the prize winners in that deck, uh, without a doubt, the two prize winners would be, in my opinion, uh, Torgov and Linray Strangers. Linray Stranger pretty much just locks down the board, and you're you're uh, when it's not dealt with, you're just generating three three flyers every single turn. Uh, and then Torgov is a unit that, if not answered relatively quickly, can generate insane value. Uh, a good runner up for the best card in the deck would be um, I can't quite remember the name of the dragon. It is a uh, split a spit flame Draconis. Yes, yeah, spit flame Draconis. It's a six mana six seven with flying, which uh, Body-wise, is already very insane. It just runs over every single aggro card in the format, and it has a permafrost ability as well, as well as the ability to ping off for four mana repeatedly. So it's not just a one-time. You can just continue to do that to pick off the smaller units, which is nice. Oh, yeah. It's an incredible power sink for sure. Uh, this deck seems really good. It's like the Jack deck to beat the other Jack decks, which I think makes sense in a world where you're expecting a lot of Praxis and just a lot of, like... Um, 
really aggressively slanted Jack fire decks because this deck will just like crush them for sure. And I think I think the deck that can actually beat um um Chonky Skycrag or I think has like a pretty good chance of beating it is ironically um Fire Time Shadow Sack, which did not beat it in the finals, but um I I played against it um in around 64 on um Sack and destroyed it. Um, I think one of the problems, if if you rewatch the finals of this ECQ, um, Black Ice built their deck in a very very greedy way. Um, they were playing a Grazer plus Jack, and I'm pretty sure no Interloper. Yeah, no Interloper for Gentle Grazer for Jack, which is that is greedy, very very greedy. They were going for the more aggressive. They were going for the more. I I believe they're going for the more aggressive stance. Um, to be fair. I think for a short time, people thought that the idea of a big uh, Skycrag deck was just just kind of a meme. It wasn't really going to take off. Uh, and when it did, it did. Uh, it, and it took off mm-hmm. very well. Yeah. I mean, I definitely didn't register Firetime Shadow thinking I was going to play against a bunch of Skycrag. But that, that just happened to be a thing I played against and uh, did reasonably well there. The thing about like the, the Firetime Shadow Sack decks in general is I think they're pretty high variance. Like if, if you just kind of go off, you go off. Uh, Shrine is just a very powerful card and sometimes you can win games you had no business winning. Yeah, the sheer amount of value it gives you is very insane. I mean, at the cost. I mean, because you have to think, the cru- um, being able to sack a unit especially a corrupted unit is just insane value you 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 lose no resource for it and it just gives you uh, most of the time uh four plus worth of stats and attack uh, uh most of the time with two units on board well and if they flood the board even more so yeah i mean yeah the synergies are are, are seriously crazy um I, I think black ice definitely took a bigger risk um, by playing, by by building their deck the way they did, it obviously paid off. Um, though I think it hurt them in the finals. They had a lot of influence problems. I think that mm-hmm. can happen. I think the way I built my Firetime Shadow deck was a little more conservative. I um, put a bigger emphasis on getting the factions I wanted with a four Interloper, a three Crack the Earth. So, I don't know. I, it, it's a trade-off, obviously. Um, uh, Black Eyes crushed me in top 16. Like, just crushed me. Um they both, I think they played a little bit better than me, and I think also their deck... I think General Grazer is really good in the mirror. Um, it's just, like, value soup, uh, and th- that's kind of hard for my deck to deal with. My deck's a little leaner, right? we got, like, Strange Gladiator and stuff. So um, if I if I ended up getting behind in the mirror, where both players have access to, like, busted Shrine Draws and, like, Jack Supplier Vox nonsense, um, getting behind can be hard to... Um, recover from oh without a doubt um in, in regards to the mirror it is when you're playing the fts mirror value is the key that is the way you're going to win the game uh you want to outvalue your opponent and playing those general grazers getting into things like uh depending on what you're running fox endra you name it you, uh, you want to get as much value as possible whereas in regards to other matchups like praxis strangers uh, Praxis Aggro, Skycrag Big. You want to be the aggressor. You want to be forcing mm-hmm. your opponent to have an answer at every turn so that they're not able to play, uh, play proactively. Now now that, that person has to play reactively, which uh, kind of hinders their game plan in a lot of situations, especially against aggro. Uh, aggro players don't typically want to play reactively. They want to be on the proactive side of things the whole game. 
Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I guess to kind of like shed a little more light on how I got onto uh, Firetime Shadow Vox for this tournament, uh, uh, my team was largely um, largely centered around playing uh, Rakano Aggro or Praxis Aggro, uh, led by WatchWolf92, Jonathan Sukenik, um, who was just like crushing with um, his builds of um, Rakano. One of the builds he had um, was called Dead Cows. And the, the the core idea of it was um, take out um, Milos and Tota Pioneer, take out like the cards that are essentially people people say are like uncuttable. So for his so for his list, uh, he kept he had a two of Tota Pioneer, four of Milos, four of Jack. Yeah, so he didn't end up running it. Uh, I think if you look at uh, Chai City Shogun's list, yeah. So if you look at Chai City Shogun's list, um. Zero. Uh, he has Kozen Darkheart over uh, Milos, uh, and he has no Tota Pioneer. He has four main deck Edict of Kodash. Got some Kira the Prodigy and Real Gones Disciple. So th- this was the deck that we were looking at. Um, I think it's re- it's really interesting thought experiment, and the the deck clearly worked um, based on like how my teammates were performing on ladder and in um, concentrated testing. But for some reason, it just wasn't working as well for me as I w- would hope. I'm not really an aggro player. Well, so the biggest problem with the, with the deck is uh, in the aggro, aggro mirror, Akira just runs over it. It gets bigger and bigger, and it's very difficult to deal with. Uh, Kozen is just a permanent blocker against aggro in most cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes to the Skycrag matchup, the deck kind of just rolls over um, just due to the big units. Um, Kira the Prodigy just dies to turn to seeds, and when Kira dies in that matchup, Real Gun, uh, when, when uh, Realgun's Disciple dies... Uh, it's difficult for this deck to come back. Now you just have some some decent, like you have Vera and decent units. Kozen does nothing against Skycrag. Uh, Jack mm-hmm. does nothing against Skycrag. So it's just, it, it kind of tends to roll over. So in this cur- in the current metagame for this past ECQ, Rakano wasn't as goodly uh, positioned as a deck like Praxis was. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... Um... Yeah, this deck definitely doesn't take um, Skycrag into into account very well. It lines up really poorly um, in that matchup, especially because of turn to seed. And it's definitely it's just like it, I don't think it um, I don't think it can win the mi- like against mid range Jack decks if that makes sense. Like Jack decks that um, can like stabilize and take over a longer game. Um, I think it's pretty good at winning Iron Mirrors. Um, but that's kind of like the, the 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 idea of it, right? Like if you expect lots of Praxis Aggro, you expect that to like dominate the tournament. Recon this Recano like dead cows list becomes a really good choice because it just like steamrolls Praxis Aggro. And I think most, I think not most, but I think a, a, a majority of players were probably expecting a lot more Praxis Aggro than they were uh, the Skycrag. Skycrag wasn't really a thought process, uh, and funnily enough. Uh, the first list that I ended up trying uh, was running Geminon, and Geminon is a mm. is, is a unit that I think was severely underrated, um, as it's just it's an incredibly high value unit. But uh, when my when my team and I were talking about it, you know, we were we were talking about lists that we wanted to, to bring to this, and we all uh, almost all of us ended up deciding on Skycrag. And I was like, okay, let's just take this list, let's test it, let's play some games. And every every matchup we played, the Skycrag deck that we ran had above a fifty percent win rate against those decks. It beat Mono Shadow, it beat FJS, it mm-hmm. beat Praxis, it beat Rakano. It performed extremely well. Now, 
take that into practice for how I did in ECQ. Uh, unfortunately, didn't pan out so well. Um, the first, my first four games uh, couldn't draw any power, and then my next six games, turn four, five, and six, my opponents had perfect hard removal for each one of my threats. So it, it was a rough ECQ for me, unfortunately. Uh, didn't do nearly as well as I did in the past ECQ. Yeah, so you were, you were on Skycrag, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you made a good choice. Um, I, I, like, if I were you and I had that result with Skycrag, I probably would still want to run it back, seeing um, how well a lot, of, a lot of other players ended up doing with it. I mean, sometimes the, the dice dice roll that way, you know what I mean? And I think it was funny enough that a lot of people didn't really think about this, but uh, and it's more meme if anything, but there is a situation in which this happens, especially against decks like FTS. So like, if you're predicting a meta with a lot of FTS and Praxis Aggro, you know, decks that flood mm-hmm. the board, Skycrag in Th- uh, Expedition should consider this. You run your Geminons. One, it's just an insanely valuable unit. It has so much value. It forces your opponents to have to deal with it immediately. And if they can't deal with it, it's just you're on a ticking timer at that point until either it kills you or its effect kills you. But something Mm -hmm. I was thinking about was, okay, if I'm expecting a lot of Praxis aggro, if I'm expecting a lot of FTS, even Rakano in some situations, why don't I run Lightning Storms and a one-of Nova Blast? Why is that? Well, with no one of Nova Blast. So, so, so spicy. Hear hear me out. Hear me out. (laughs) Geminon can go off single handedly from zero. If there are 14 units on board, you play Nova Blast. (laughs) Now, I love it. I love it. Now in the, in, 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 uh, in FTS, that's a very likely possibility that that just happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Praxis, it could happen, but you're on a much faster clock against Praxis. Now, I didn't bring Nova Blast into the tournament because I thought it was too meme but it is a... It, if the meta shifted more towards, towards FTS, that would have been a very real possibility because that mm-hmm. is something that FTS, they cannot answer. The only way they can answer it is they have to like devour a unit in response to the Nova Blast. Sure, yeah. And a lot of those... De- like Devour isn't really played much in the Firetime Shatter decks right now so it would have to be like it would have to be like worthy cause worthy cause does stop it or like a banish on the geminon but mm-hmm. like that, that that's about it right yeah. like especially if you're if the firetime shadow players tapped out like that's gonna wreck some serious havoc yeah and you don't even necessarily need nova blast um double if you get your geminon to like 30 or 40 mastery and then you just double lightning storm when you have a board full of, of big dudes against an fts that you just win the mm-hmm. game that way as well. So it's an, it's an yeah. incredibly fringe situation, but it's a situation that will just win you the game if they do not answer it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's a way to win. Absolutely, that that's good stuff. I I feel like I should try that at some point. That would be sick. <laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah, the thing about Geminon is like. There's kind of like a pro and con where like a lot of the Firetime Shadow decks are going to be playing their banishes and worthy causes, but some of them will get greedy and not play as much removal. And there's also not as many combusts. So, and that was an unfortunate thing. Is in one of my games, one of my opponents combusted. Uh, <laughs> they combusted my first Geminon, banished my second Geminon, and I was like, oh. And, and funnily enough, most of the top sixteen didn't run a lot of that removal. So I was like, if I could have just made it past the qualifying stage, my deck would have been really well positioned 
to fight off because and that's another thing in the mirror if you don't if you don't uh have a turn to teach my gemini my gemini is going to permanently permanently block and kill your units and then now you're on a clock yeah and if the if you have like a like a backlash in your market uh, in your salvo market you can like even counter their first turn to see it if you get to untap for a turn and have enough power left up and this is another thing that me and my teammates talked uh, talked about in expedition throne backlash in the market is unarguably better in expedition unseal is the better card why do you ask because you can't get it back with prod sorcery right because you're not playing like pro- something to get it back right well it's not even it's not even prod sorcery it's permafrost got it ah, Perma- permafrost and curses unseal stops those so now if i if i have that unseal i don't necessarily have to worry about my units being permafrosted or cursed because absolutely I just, yeah i can just stop it and then continue with uh with the big unit train so we were talking about that we were like we're like okay backlash on paper is better but in expedition unseal is just better positioned because permafrost we know that we're probably going to see some mirror which means we know we're going to see permafrost which means we know that unseal is just better because we can use the unseal to counter any spell in any other matchup we're not really worried mm-hmm. about grabbing it back with prod sorcery because we're not just going to run a prod sorcery just to bring back backlash. It doesn't make sense. And then the unseal helps against the curses that we might encounter. Yeah, a pretty pretty good summary. And, and yeah, that deck's going to see a, a lot of play on Expedition Ladder in the coming weeks um, as people are digesting the tournament results and um, trying to rank up on Ladder. Um, oh, without a doubt. Yeah, so... One question I have, and I'm sure a lot of people have after this tournament, is you, you look through the decks, and it, once again, Jack kind of dominated. Um, this is like the, what, the third time in a row we've seen Jack just, like, crush a tournament. And I'm pretty sure he's been in, like, every winning deck list Jack was the, the number, past three events. Yeah. Jack was the number one most played card, second only to Blazing Salvo. There was 164, <laughs> 164 copies in the... Uh, uh, in this uh, of Jack in this tournament, and then there was 158 <laughs> copies of Blazing Salvo. So, by the way, I knew wow. the Blazing I knew Blazing Salvo nerf was going to do nothing. The minus two health is not <laughs> is, is is was not a big enough impact. Blazing Salvo, they did it to 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 counter uh, uh, unitless decks, but it, it's like okay, I took two damage, whatever. I'm using my life as a resource anyway. So it, it did nothing. I, I knew full well that nerf was going to go just, just completely. Oh yeah, it, it it does it does nothing in expedition for sure. I think it's a incredibly marginal expedition. It might be less marginal in throne, depending on the like type of control deck. But mm-hmm. I think even still, it's still very good. Mm-hmm. But I think the question you're trying to get to is is Jack too good? Uh, my answer for you. I don't think Jack is too good. I think Jack where he stands is too good. I think Jack as a card is a perfect card. It's it's a well-designed card, but I think hmm. his current numbers are wrong. Um, there were two changes that were brought to my attention that that could be could be brought to him. One is increasing Jack's influence to four fire. First of all, you, if you do that, Jack is unplayable. He will if you increase Jack's fire influence to four, he will never see play again. Point blank period. Only in mono wow. decks. Second change that was brought to my attention was, okay, he's played at four. Why not just increase the cost of his ability to three? Or not to three, uh, to two instead of one. So now Make him a five, five drop. Yeah. Make him a five drop. Exactly. He's already he's already a four drop, two, three, double damage. A five drop, two, three, double damage that deals four and 
gets you a card and then will continue to get you cards at five is not that much of a downside. He would still see play, but the opponents would have more time to answer him because most of the time when Jack hits the board, your opponents don't have the answer except for chump blocking and then losing a resource. They they probably mm-hmm. didn't want to lose. Uh, so that, those were two changes that were brought to my attention. I think if they do end up changing Jack, I think that the increase in his... Uh, ability cost is probably the safest way to go. He will still see play. It is a nerf just so that people have answers, but it is not a nerf to where he won't see play uh, anymore. Yeah, and something really important about that is I think, so if he ends up becoming an effectively a five drop, I think he's going to see less play in aggro decks and going to see more play, or is going to see like a similar amount of play in like mid-range decks like the FJS Jack deck that Keith Pelleg played in Throne. Which I think is perfectly fine. I That's another thing. I think Jack in aggro is, is another problem. I think that mm-hmm. is what's making him so good. It's just yep. he's he's a fo- he's the four drop that Praxis aggro and Ricardo aggro needed. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, he's so much better than something like Crimson Fire Mar Tattoo Dragon. It, it, it's not even funny. He, mm-hmm. It's just like he in another league. He's in his own tier. They each generate their own value, but the value they generate. If we're talking in terms of rough power value they give you, uh, uh, Tattoo Dragon gives you a 2-2, which is probably roughly 1-2 power worth of value. Um, Crimson Fire Maul, if it hits something, is probably roughly 2-3 power worth of value. However, Jack is, if you drop the the power sigil, is guaranteed 4-plus power value every single time because <laughs> nine out of ten nine out of ten times you're removing a unit and dealing four or the other time you're just removing two units yep and even if even if you don't in the aggro decks just dealing two to two units is still incredibly good mm-hmm. yeah i mean like yeah the courage just courage just messed up right now i, I think i think increasing uh, Jack's ability to two cost would be really good, and that's the change I would also recommend. I think the um, the change of increasing influence, I just think will make the card like it would be it too would be bad. No, it would be it would if you increase it to four influence. If that was a, if that's a change they're considering, just consider this. It's already relatively hard enough to hit the three influence in some situations. If you increase mm-hmm. it to four, it is quite literally unplayable until turn like seven or eight in multi-faction mm-hmm. decks now in mono red decks it's perfectly fine the four influence change would do literally nothing yeah that that's reasonable for sure yeah definitely um it's good would make it really hard it wouldn't be a cornerstone of expedition mm-hmm. in that case mm-hmm. at least to the same degree and, and yeah and throne there's just like you can still play it in like a like a stone scar or just like a, like a like a two faction deck that just plays all all of their dual power. Oh yeah, you can make it work. Um, funnily enough, I actually thought that we were going to be seeing more uh, mono shadow, which is why I was like, okay, um, I can't remember. It's the six five for four siege breaker. I was like, okay, siege breaker nuts. Mono shadow has the in expedition has the best three drop in the game. It is a five five for three, insane. Mm-hmm. Siege breaker just kills it. I was like, okay, Siege Breaker's nuts. We're going to see a lot of Mono Shadow, a lot of FTS. Siege Breaker's just good. Um, we didn't really see that much Mono Shadow. In fact, uh, I think out of Mono Shadow in Top 64, there's one, let me see, two. There were two Mono Shadows in all of Top 64. 
now with with FJS FJS runs it, so there's also that to consider. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I I remember before I um decided on registering my deck for the tournament, I was like talking to Boxer, and like pretty much the one thing he was willing to tell me is just to like not play Mono Shadow. He was like, "Please don't play this. Like whatever you do, do not play Mono Shadow. It's bad." And I was like. Yeah, it doesn't seem great. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I would go that far, but I, I'm, I'm gonna trust what you're saying. I'm really glad I didn't play a Mono Shadow variant. Mono Shadow is positioned as a very good ladder deck. It is not positioned as a good tournament deck, because Mono. Mm, if you play Mono Shadow, I know your deck list without even having to know your deck list, because I sure, already, yeah. I already, if you're running one faction in Expedition. I already know, okay, you're just jamming the best cards in that one faction. So I can do process of elimination and know that you're running X and not running Y. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the deck's very predictable. Yeah, and with these two and three faction decks, you're going to be able to predict the the cards more often than not, especially in the two, but three color, there's there's room for, for variance. But with, with those single faction decks, it's just, it's not positioned well for a tournament setting. Yeah, I, I I can agree with that. Yeah, I also just think like Ikaria is just really slow in a Praxis aggro world. Ikaria is better in Throne. Ikaria is better oh, in Oh, for sure. It is not as good as an, ex- an Expedition. There's just, it takes way too long to ramp up. Stat-wise for Expedition, it's just not worth it. Something better than that mm-hmm. is just quite simply Aramont. Aramont is a four cost that generates more damage, more value than Ikaria does two turns sooner. Yeah, no, Aramot's great. I think Aramot's actually the only reason, or the, the main reason you'd even consider playing Mono Shadow. Like, Aramot and Marionette Cross are the actual reasons you want to consider playing that deck, for yes, the most because, part. Yeah, because no other um, no other car, no other faction of the game has a 3-drop quite like Mono Shadow does. Absolutely. Yeah, there is argument that Milos is better, but Marionette Cross just looks at Milos and says, well, what you doing down there? <laughs> Yeah, and then and then they can't even like jack it away. Nope. Yeah, it, so it doesn't die to Jack. It doesn't die to Milos. It's just it. It's like a permanent blocker against the aggro, unless you're playing Praxis and you play the three three that buffs, and then it could get out of hand. But that's also just purely situation. Yeah, though I, the fire decks can also like right, like they can siege breaker it. They can um, if they're Praxis, they can salvo into unmake or something. Or they can like if they have a dragon out, they can draconic ire it. But the, those those cases are a lot less um, a lot less common than like a lot of stuff that just dies to Jack and Jack is pretty much always there. <laughs> Another thing I was thinking about uh, for just you know like meta positioning was if we were seeing a lot of FTS like sack decks, you know what would have been really good dragons. You, I don't know why. Ooh. So hmm. so this was something I was thinking about. So if FTS was more prevalent, dragons would be good. Here's why. Um, Cinder Clutch just generates me an insane amount of value mm-hmm. and insane, just infinite blockers. And if you are playing Vox, I can just sack one of my three ones. Just so that was something I was thinking about, but I was like, okay, we're not going to see a lot of FTS. So I was like, it's just not good. Yeah. The problem is like dragons just dragons loses pretty hard to praxis aggro in my yeah. experience and like a lot of your units just died a jack like crimson fire motet like most of the dragon eclipse dragon pretty embarrassing to play a bunch of x4s which is what dragons has to do i'm pretty um, sure the only dragon that doesn't die in that deck to jack is um 
uh, I can't. It's a permafrost dragon. I can never remember the name of it. We literally just uh, talked. Spit, spit flame dragon. Is. Yeah, that's the only dragon that doesn't die to it. Every other dragon in the deck dies to Jack. I guess if you're playing um, FPS dragons, um, you have like Skylord Tolek and Carvet. I, th- I think that's. I think if you want to play dragons, it needs to be like Stone Scar or um, Menace. Um, those are like it, you can't really play the Skycrag version. You wouldn't do Stone Scar because if you don't do Stone Scar, your Cinder Clutches was kind of dead in the water. Because if you have access to blue, you have access to uh, the dragon that buffs the spells in your hand. Mm-hmm. Which is just, it's just arguably better. Uh, FPS is good, but here's the problem with FPS. You are now introducing more cards into your card pool, which means you are less likely to draw cards, like draw uh, Acidonis, draw Cinder Clutch, draw your Spirit Visage. You're also opening the possibility to, okay, I have uh, I have Visage in my hand. I have Acidonis in my hand. Oh, wait, I don't have the influence to play them. Yeah, the influence on that deck is tricky for sure. Especially you want you want like um, fire, fire, shadow, shadow, primal, primal for Skylord. Uh, if you want to be like curving out with that every time, a, a, a Carvet helps, but it, that deck relies on Carvet really heavily. I agree with that. Yeah, as, as a as a as a expedition dragon stand, it's not good right now. I'm sorry, it's just not. Anyone who knows me knows. Uh, uh... Fire Primal are my two favorite colors in the game. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty clear. <laughs> it's kind of your brand. It is. It sure. is my brand. <laughs> so, something that we saw recently though are these wild cards, like these world wild cards. Mm-hmm. Now we have zero information about them whatsoever, <laughs> which I which I think is a poor, poor, poor decision on Direwolf's part. I think just leaving us in the shadows. When it comes to these things with these huge things like worlds, it's just it's a bad idea. They should they they, they should tell us what, what they are instead of leaving us waiting. Uh me and my team were talking about it and what the reason we think they haven't told us is because they don't even know what it is yet. Oh, probably, yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> but when it comes down to it, you know, there is room to speculate and predict what these wild cards are. Yeah. What what would you, what would your speculation and predictions be for what these wild cards are? Obviously, we know the end goal of the wild card is it is another seat in worlds. Like that's yep. we we know that much. But how how would you predict that one gets a wild card? The 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 two ways I think this could go would be it would either be uh, that they would just have discretionary invites, or they would invite like streamers, personalities, that kind of deal. Um, I'm not necessarily opposed to that if they choose well and like uh, take take a lot of input, but it could that could that I think that has the highest chance of going wrong. And when what, what I would like more than that, uh, which I think is the other option, is to have a uh, tournament. Now the, the 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 issue with that is what what is the criteria for being in the wild card tournament? Do you have to have a certain number of top sixty fours or top eights, top sixteens, top fours? Uh, but the criteria for that isn't known. And so if you make the criteria too exclusive, you'll get a bunch of people saying, wow, I didn't even know that's something I needed to worry about and get a certain X number of finishes in that um, range. That's what me and my team are talking about. We feel we're, we're getting, we are getting dangerously close to the end of qualifying for worlds, like dangerously close. And we still know nothing about this wildcard position where this is information that the players need because they can prepare for this. Uh, yep. one, one prediction we had was maybe it's like, influential people in eternal or like the most improved or something but in, in regards to influential we were talking okay well who's the number one streamer in all of eternal 
Uh, oh, he's a Hearthstone streamer. What's his name? Brian Kibler? Yeah, so Brian Kibler is the number one Eternal streamer in the world. And he has streamed like, <laughs> he, I think he streamed like less than 17 hours of, of the game. Now, we were thinking, okay, well, if, if the wild card is an influential person and they're like, hey, Brian Kibler, here's a free spot to Worlds, that you're going, you're going to, you're going to make the Eternal community incredibly upset incredibly angry. i would be very mad about that and i love brian kibler but i would be that would make me very upset brian kibler is an amazing guy great card game player no one could take that away from him but to just if if that is a direction that they're looking to go if they were just to like go go to someone who has no time playing this game and be like hey you're the most influential person in eternal even though you streamed next to nothing of the game here's a free spot to worlds you are going to alienate your community and there's already a marketing problem in this game and it's just going to make it worse so fingers crossed that that is not what they're going for yeah i think like the the like what i was thinking about is they would try to um get like um streamers like yada uh local pojo uh, people like that. Um, it's four slots, and, and the way they choose that seems very um, discretionary. But alas, if they're discretionary invites, they're going to be very discretionary by definition. So I don't know. I, I don't like that route at all. It seems very. Um, oh, it's far fetched for sure. It, it's bad. Yeah. Um, I, I would rather there be a tournament, but I would like to know what the criteria for that tournament is. I I would expect that we will probably know something within the next i would say two to three weeks two weeks is what i would hope for but three weeks is probably what's going to happen um my thing Mm -hmm. is i'm totally okay with whatever they announce as long as whatever they announce gives the players who want to qualify for this a chance to do so if what they announce is already too late for most players to qualify for it's just a bad pr call on their part i agree I agree. I don't want to have it announced and be like, oh, I was like really close to getting it, right? Like I have a decent number of finishes at this point. And if that's like not enough for a like, um, not enough for a wildcard tournament, I would be like kind of upset because I like didn't know uh, what the criteria was and maybe I would have pushed harder. Maybe other people would have pushed harder for that criteria. So if they just like um, spring it on us, like you need X of this. And I'm like, well, there's no more time for, for most people to get X of this or for anybody to get X, even people that are very close. Um, then it's a problem. Now, a little off tangent, but I think this needs to be talked about. Um, I like Direwolf as a company. I love them. I think they do a great job on all of their games. Every game they've made, I have been satisfied with. I mm-hmm. Every game they've made has been good. Even their dice drafting game, which a little plug for them, Sargarda, if you guys are interested, it's extremely cheap. It's an amazing, really, amazingly re- relaxing game, super fun to play. But besides the point, I love Direwolf. However, I feel like in terms of marketing, they are just not doing enough for the Eternal scene. They are pumping so much into these into their board games, these single purchase board games that only generate them so much revenue, where if they would just put a tenth of the effort that they put into their into their board games as they do into Eternals marketing, they would see their numbers skyrocket by like 10, 20, 30% most likely. And it's like, you know that the marketing for Eternal is bad when their only marketing is Twitch and Twitter and they market their other games in Eternal more than they market Eternal elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
the way the way I feel like they view Eternal, and this this could be wrong. So if anyone from Direwolf is listening, uh, don't don't destroy me over this. I, I get the sense that Eternal is something that they can show off to other companies and be like, look, we we created a very very good um digital platform for uh, a, a a collectible card game. Like this is like the the, the um the mechanics of it. Um, just like the, the the whole layout of it, the visuals, the graphics, um, uh, it's top notch. Um, they they do an incredible job on that. They've done an incredible job on that. I think um, a lot of it is probably a marketing pitch. Be like, look, we're, like we 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 can do a very good job laying the groundwork for your digital card game, bigger company, right? Like that's a pitch they can sell to other companies. But here, here's here's my thing, and I, I've compared other card games, and I rank personally. In, term, in terms of, of a couple factors, I rank Eternal as one of the best, if not the best, online card game, period. And and here's my reasoning why. It is the easiest card game to learn. It doesn't have the, the, the power screw that Magic does because you always have your influence. You don't have to tap your influence. Um, it is the cheap. It is one of the right now before Runeterra, it was the cheapest to get into. But because Runeterra is a brand new game, it is... It is um, uh, it is not the cheapest anymore. Also, there's Epic Card Game, but you get all the cards for free. That's a separate matter entirely. So it is one of the cheapest card games to get into. It has one of the best UIs in the game, one of the most intuitive mm-hmm. UIs in the game. It, it has one of the best, if not the best, uh, a community for card online card games. Um, it is all. It doesn't have. It also doesn't have polarizing metas like Hearthstone does. It doesn't require the balance changes like Hearthstone does. It is for the most part. It is typically always balanced. Um, and the company that that runs it is also a really good company that I that I that I support because they're not doing anything shady like other companies which I will not name because it is not my place to do so. I think that's a pretty good overview. But uh, but back on track. <laughs> the next thing we 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 want, we want to talk to everyone today is just deck selection. And I think yeah. a good a good segue point to get into is you know is it always correct to play the best deck? On paper and statistically, yes. If you compile the deck, it is 100% correct to play the best deck. Um, however, as of yesterday, this was brought to my attention, uh, in games like Epic, Epic Card Game, which is a, it's a smaller card game, um, there you don't want to play the best card game or the best deck, but here's why. Say X players are playing the best deck. They know that this is the best deck in X situations. Well, other players are going to play Y best deck because Y best deck counters X best best deck. So the best deck isn't necessarily the deck that beats all their decks. It is the deck that you can play to position yourself better than other players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think deck selection is always hard, especially for um, these like high... Um high-level tournaments, ECQs, uh, Worlds, um, especially in Eternal, it's hard to figure out what um, what to play. And the way I think about it is I want to find and play the deck that will give me the high the highest, um, highest win percentage. I, I want to give myself the best chance to win the event, if that makes sense. And that, that means different things for different people, right? But that doesn't... Yeah, that doesn't... But just... Trying to win a tournament, a high-level tournament, doesn't always meaning doesn't always mean playing the best deck. Because if someone is playing the best mm-hmm. deck and you want to win the tournament, you're going to play a deck that beats the best deck. 
which is which yeah, what possibly. happened which is actually which is what perfect this is a perfect example which is what happened with this ECQ the best deck undoubtedly was either FTS or Praxis so what did people do they played Skycrack a deck that was considered probably my most to just be a meme bad deck but it beat the best deck yeah i mean like skycrack jack is the um is the byproduct of um a jack domain format it's like the jack deck to beat other jack decks um yeah it's it's um you're, you're basically playing you're playing the deck that is least vulnerable to jack but also plays jack which is just i'm saying jack so much it's it's a convoluted process yeah, yeah, it, it's a pervasive card. Um, yeah, so that that's definitely one strategy for doing well in tournaments. And, and the, like, right, like when I when I think about what I'm gonna play in a tournament, I, I'm not just thinking about what the um what the what the consensus tier one decks are, what people think are like the highest performing decks. I'm always going for what will give me the highest win percentage. And for me, I tend to do better with decks that either I have made myself or I have tuned myself, or are a little bit off the beaten path. So that's why you don't always really see me playing the, um, the consensus tier one deck, because I, um, I, I have not tended to do as well with them. And yeah. I tend to, I tend to, I tend to uh, pilot decks that I've made better than tier one decks, mm-hmm. which, and I also just like, I, I do well in spots where my opponents have less information than I do. Mm-hmm. And, right it was like i know what's in their deck but they don't necessarily know what i'm up to right um and i i found that like that that gives me a huge advantage in a lot of tournament scenarios a good a good example of that for me um i've been holding top 20 in throne uh for nearly the entire month with zolta control a deck that Mm -hmm. by most was probably not considered the best deck but it is positioned well to beat decks that are being played which puts it in a, a contender for being the best deck mm-hmm. sure yeah and i think for me the best example of that is not really an eternal example i mean i have i have good eternal examples but the the, the first one that comes to mind is um when i want a ptq in magic uh i played a deck that i don't think any other person registered for so there were like probably 100 somewhere between like 150 200 people registered in the ptq i was the only person to play my deck it was um for people who play magic um it was a, a green white elves deck it was basically play lots of play lots of creatures or units on the board um they're all the same creature type uh they synergize with each other make a bunch of uh, a bunch of mana or power um and then they just do very explosive stuff um i was the only person playing that deck it was some a deck i've been playing for like at least five years beforehand um and it happened to be really well positioned for that tournament um there were a lot of people playing um a lot of people playing burn decks, a lot of people playing um, just like uh, red based aggressive strategies. And then there were like other other combo decks. And then there was a, a pervasive. Uh, I don't know if you have heard of Oko Thief of Crowns Cthulhu. I don't know if you play any magic and know. I'm, that very, I'm very well aware that the card was not balanced. It was a <laughs> meta defining card. Yeah. So so Oko was in that tournament. And one of the best ways to beat Oko was to go wide. Um Elves is very good at going wide, um, and so I ended up playing against Oko in the finals, and I, I won that match on the part of going very wide and um, just kind of crushing at the end. Um, but yeah, like for for me, that that's the biggest example of playing something that is really off the radar and doing well with it. And I think that deck gave me the best chance to win the event. If I was playing, um, if I was playing an Oko deck, I don't think I would have had as good of a win percentage. Even though that deck, I think 
most people would agree is uh, objectively a better deck, a, a objectively a higher performing deck. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So, so, so here's here's the question then. By our calculations, it is not always correct to play the best deck. There are mm-hmm. situations when it, when it is, but it comes down to player differential and player preference. Because the yeah. best deck is not always going to be the best for every player. Because some decks are harder to pile than others. Some decks, while they're the best deck, can counter by other decks. So, I, I, in my opinion, it is not always correct to play the best deck. What are, yeah. what, are what do you think? I, I, I agree with you. I think um, a lot of people will say, oh, just play the best deck. Um, and I think their position is correct under a um, very flawed assumption. And that, that flawed assumption is that everybody... Um, Everybody's essentially essentially has the same skill level and the same uh, like preferences. Essentially, assuming everyone is a robot, we're all robots. We're all going to play the um, the highest performing deck, right? Yeah. But that's just not that's not how anything works. We are all people. We are all different. People have different preferences and play styles. So you're going to get a um, wider range of decks. And what um, what's correct for one person to play an event might not be correct for another person to play. So then here's so then here's the. Uh... Here's the thing. So if it's not always correct to play to play the best deck, how how does a how would a player understand their strengths and weaknesses when piloting either their deck or the best deck? Like like how what is the best way to understand your own strengths and weaknesses when you're piloting a deck? I mean, I think you just have you have to play a lot and you have to gather a lot of experience um, in whatever card game and like whatever you're playing. Try out lots of different stuff. Um, I think, like, in theory, um, it's always really good to try to expand your range in terms of, like, strategies and decks that you're competent with. Um, but it, you be, it's basically just noticing. You have, like, taking notes on, like, what, what is working for you, what's not working for you, what you can do to maybe get better at the things that aren't working for you. But, right, like, say you're you're two days away from an ECQ, um, you think that X deck is is the best deck, but you're not you're not proficient at playing it. You want to be proficient at playing it, but you can't do that in two days. It's not worth playing that deck and having a, a mediocre win rate and playing a deck that um, is considered less good, but having a better win rate because you know how to play it and are competent at piloting it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like it's um it, it's a big um it's a big thing to be able to understand like, hey, I'm good at X, but not good at Y. And I have some a set amount of time to learn, learn why. Uh, then you have to decide it's a cost benefit analysis. Like, is it worth um can I put in the time to learn why to be good enough at it to give myself a better a chance at winning? And then if not, you can just play X and you just, it's all about just doing what, what will give you the best chance. And that can be whatever it is, depending on circumstances. There's a lot of different factors that go into that. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. It's really, it's really a lot of self-awareness. You have to really like understand who you are as a player. Um, what, what kinds of decks, um, make you, um, make you think clearly um, where you're able to go through the lines. Well, uh, yeah, honestly, like winning an ECQ is about playing really uh, piloting really well and playing a deck that isn't just completely terrible. A prime. Yeah. And a prime example of that uh, was not this was not this ECQ, but was actually the QCP. Um, Mm -hmm. The the deck that won, everyone looked at it like this, this deck is just, it's bad. Like it was, it was a mono red deck that was unarguably, played some really questionable cards. Sunny's deck? Yes. So the deck itself <laughs> yeah. was really bad. What made it good 
is that Sonny's piloting ability is second to none. Sonny is an amazing pilot. He's able to make decisions that most people wouldn't even think of. So Sonny was able to pilot this deck in a way that while the deck itself wasn't so great, his ability to pilot boosted the level of the deck to an ability and a level that it wasn't normally at. Yep. Yeah. No, I think it's a combination. Like there are some good cards in this deck. I think there's enough, like it has Jack, right? I think like, well, like being able to pilot any Jack deck at the highest level, like you're, you're, you're sunny, right? And you are one of the best players in the game, bar none. And you have Jack in your deck. You have Milos in your deck. You have um, Torch in your deck. Um, for sure. You can just win a tournament. Like, yeah, that, that's how that works. Um, do we do we know if that's the that was the optimal choice for Sunny? I have no idea. I'm not Sunny. I don't know what the optimal choice for them is. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly it worked. I think like this deck would have had to been a lot worse um, for Sunny to have not won an event with this or to have not done as well. Um, the deck basically like passed a bar of this is this is a playable, um, and then Sunny's piloting, um, and obviously to win any tournament you have to have a bit of luck. All those factors together. Um, resulted in the win um so yeah i I think sunny um gave himself a good chance to win this event by playing a a playable but not amazing deck and he knew he could pilot it very well um and yeah that's 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 how that happened now in regards to you know so so sunny sunny played a, a very aggressive aggro deck so here's the thing different archetypes obviously require a different different skill sets in uh, different matchups and just different skill sets in general. Sure, yeah. So why don't we take a minute to go over what we think some of those different skill sets are? And to keep it simple, we'll just go over three, like the skill sets for control, the skill sets for, for strictly control, strictly mid-range, and strictly aggro. We'll keep combo, combo control, mid-range. We'll keep that out because if we talk about that, we will be here literally all day. I mean, I, I'll give a really brief overview of com- uh, combo right now that'll take like only a few seconds. Combo decks are really about um, searching for patterns and being able to um, make a lot make a lot of calculations in your head um, in, in a short period of time and executing them and being able to like ha- um, switch your plan rapidly. It's basically like it, it takes a lot of the other skills from other archetypes and you just have to like it concentrates them. Right, you have to do a lot of stuff in a shorter period of time, and a lot of ways, and you have to do a lot of like setup. Um, you have to understand how um, how all your interactions are going to play out in different um, scenarios, and you have really have to know what other people are playing so you can um, you can do the do the counterplay, right? Yeah, there was a there was actually a combo deck that I built um, and piloted for a while that actually had some fairly good results on ladder, which was a uh, it was a um, FPS. Um, uh, black iron manacle otk deck which <laughs> no one really expected and the combo quite simply was you know it was an interaction with black iron manacles and wrath of kyphus which wrath of kyphus in the history of eternal is my all-time favorite card it literally it it is a card that does everything it has hand disruption hand rebuilding power fixing uh combo breaking combo enabling it's it uh, it the card does everything. In my opinion, it is the perfect card. But the way this deck worked was you would uh, turn four, you would play a Black Iron Manacles on your opponent. Turn five, play a Black Iron Manacles on your opponent. 
turn six, after we played the power that reduced the cost of non-faction cards your deck by one, you play Wrath of Kyphus, and you just kill your opponent. And the rest of the deck is just mm-hmm. removal, uh, good-statted units like Vara, uh, Blight Moth that just deal with the board. And then, you, so you just deal with the board for the first four, five, six turns, and then you just kill your opponent. Because Relic, I was like, okay, what's not common right now? Relic hate. Okay. What's being played right now? Admiral. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was like, okay, I'm going to build a deck, a, co- a combo deck that's just going to steamroll over aggro because I've run nothing but removal. And against control decks, I just I just draw into my answers quickly and then I just blow them out of the water with a combo that can only be stopped by a counterspell. But I run for Wrath of Kyphus, so you have to counter it four times. Um, <laughs> but that's off topic. But I, I, I it was a very it was very interesting that I call and it did very well. But that that was a that was a really good explanation for for combo, which is a segue into control, which is fairly similar. Now I don't really play control as much as I used to, but back before I took my extended break, control was pretty much all I played, and I was a, I was a very very good control player in regards to journal. And a lot of things you need to consider is you know a lot of people think oh just play wrath uh, on or not wrath play harsh rule on turn five and you win the game. Well, I mean yes you could play harsh rule on five, but Control is is so much more with, okay, I want to have a card advantage. I want my opponent to burn their resources, and I'm going to use my life as a resource. So I'm going to let them chip me away. I'm going to let them chip me away. I'm going to build up an advantage. I'm going to build up resources and then start and then start to, to clear the board. You want your opponent to burn your resource, their resources faster than you. Because if you're burning your resources as a control deck faster, you are not going to be able to answer their threats efficiently anymore. Because now, so if I'm using my resources less than them and using them more efficiently, I'm trading one card for their three or four cards. Whereas if I'm panicking, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to clear every single turn. I'm trading a one for one and then they're just reloading every single turn, whether, mm-hmm. it's, whether it's mid-range or aggro. Mm-hmm. So I think... I, I think in regards to the skill sets that control has, it's knowing, okay, can I afford to take X damage or can I afford my opponent to do X things and me just pass the turn? Or do I have to respond? Do I have to play proactively? Cause as the, as the control player, you want to be more reactive than proactive. There are matchups where you need to be proactive, but you want to try to be the reactive player because that is what the, the control is. You are reacting to them. You are trying to force them out of the game to burn their resources to where they just can't really reload anymore. Yeah, I kind of have a thought on that. Um, at least the way I've played Control X in the past, and I think you're you're obviously a more experienced control player than me, but I get the sense that a lot of times Control decks have to... Um, the idea is you start reactive. You want to be reactive enough to stop your opponent from like immediately killing you, and then you need to be a little bit, and then you, then you need to become proactive and start taking away their outs. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, right? So it, oh, no, like, it makes it makes perfect sense. Yeah, when I've played control decks, it's really been about that. Like you got to get to that pivot moment and then be able to execute it, or you can go from reactive yeah. to proactive. And, and a perfect example would be the Zolta control deck I play. So typically. Mm-hmm. In most, in most, if not every matchup I play, the first seven turns of Zolta Control is I am the reactive player. I'm removing your units. I'm playing blockers. I'm drawing. I'm wiping your board. I'm setting up for my turn seven, my pivot turn. Because at turn seven, as long as I have the influence, I pivot. I, I turn six, I play Razan. Turn seven, play Akaria, or I play Sight. Yep. And now, now I'm the aggressor. And for most yep. decks, if Zolta gets to that turn seven point, if Zolta is able to play an Akaria uncontested, 
most of the time you just win because I've already made you burn your resources in the early game to try and burn me out or to deal with my early game threats like uh, Desert Marshal, Cat, uh, my my merchants. You've, you've spent so much energy trying to deal with that and to contest the board that now my bigger units can just come down free of charge. Yeah. Yeah, that's pre- Zolta Control is a perfect example. Um, yeah, being able to switch from reactive to proactive is really powerful when you're able to pull it off, because you have you have basically like you 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 you're taking away your opponent's proactivity in that crucial moment, and then they have to be reactive, but your de- their deck's not good at being reactive in a lot of those cases when you're a control deck playing against a non-control deck. So, yeah, no, super good example. Um, so I think the next one we'll talk about is mid range. Um, for me, mid range was always about like a, a couple core things. One of those things is trying to play the the most powerful things you can on every relevant point in the curve. And what I mean by that is like if you're in a format that is dominated by er- very early plays leading up to like four and five drops, the mid range deck wants to have um, the best plays possible um, within though within that time frame within those those X turns. Um, that's why you won't see a lot of mid-range decks playing like extremely expensive cards. Maybe like obviously FGS will go up to like Ikaria and sometimes we'll play Riz or sometimes we'll play um Joe. Um but that's not really like the the biggest goal. Like um FJS wants to go from like one 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 cost cards which are like the most efficient removal you can find to six and seven drops, which are um Rizan and then Ikaria. Um, and so it, it just wants to play the best cards on curve in all of those spots. And that's a, a blend of removal and threats. And the idea is like you want to have hands that um, have some amount of removal so you don't just die to decks trying to race you. And then enough threats to um, take initiative and um, become the um, proactive player in the game. I agree. Um, yeah. The only the only comment I'd really add on, you know, like how like just... Uh, skill sets and how to play mid range is just yeah you you want you want to look at your turn and think okay i want to generate the max amount of value this turn i want to be able to every turn have a threat or a play that forces my opponent to play reactively because as a mid-range player and this is a little convoluted you are a reactive proactive player so instead of pivoting (laughs) Instead of pivoting from reactive to proactive, I am reactively thinking, okay, what is the most proactive play I can make? Or I'm proactively thinking, what is the most reactive play uh, play I can make? Yep. Yeah, you're setting yourself up for positions where you can kind of do both, where you can like... I mean, Jack is kind of the perfect answer of this in that it's like reactive and proactive, right? You're, you're responding to someone's threat, but you're also creating your own threat and generating some sort of card advantage, which is like... Like that's why Jack. That's why Jack's insane, and that's why I, I love Jack in mid range decks, because um, he 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 epitomizes that perfectly. It's mm-hmm. a very valid point. As much as Jack is like obviously broken, um, yeah, he, he, is... he does epitomize good mid range gameplay. Yeah, because it is it is a reactively proactive card. It react it reacts in the sense of it is an immediate uh, reactive card as it as it deals with something. Then it is an immediate proactive card as it generates you value uh, aggressively. Now, aggro is a archetype that I don't really enjoy. I don't really enjoy playing it. I don't really enjoy playing against it. And you, like people that know me know, I, I just I don't have a soft spot for aggro personally. But as much as I like to take as as much as I like to say aggro takes no skill, 
I am wrong in, in that regard. It, there is a skill. Yes, involved. you are wrong. It, it is not quite simply just smashing my face into the keyboard and hitting A space, although there are situations, <laughs> more likely than not, that that is what it is. It is it is a deck that requires a skill set. It is it is knowing, okay, when can I push my advantage? Do I just flood the board now, or am I worried about a board wipe? So do I push my advantage, or do I hold back? Uh, do I attack now? Do I hold back? Do I use burn now? Do I hold back? Like it, it, there's just there's there's a lot of fine nuances in aggro, but it is it is I would say an 80-20 proactive reactive split. Typically, 80% of the time you want to be proactive. You want to be pushing, you want to be pushing as much as possible, but you have to keep that little bit of reactivity, especially when you're against mid-range decks or control decks, because you know, okay, they're probably gonna have a way to deal with my board. I don't want to push my advantage so far to where now I'm just out of resources and I and now I just lose the game. Yeah. Um, one really important piece of wisdom I've gathered from Watchwolf92, uh, one of the things he talks about a lot with aggro decks is how do I win games on the draw with aggro? And how do I how am I how do I play like play an aggro deck like a control deck? And that sounds really unintuitive, but it's something that um uh, he puts to great effect all the time when I watch him play and something that um, I definitely try to think about more. Um, it, it, it's you, you have to think about it's like it's what you're talking about with conservation of resources, uh, making sure you're not overextending, but also that um, you're playing enough pressure that like really, really delicate balance. And, and it's kind of like you have to and especially also in aggro mirrors, if you're on the draw a lot of time, you have to start by being the reactive player like uh, your opponent clearly has has initiative. Right. And, and you're going to keep hands that have a little more removal and you kill all their stuff. You run them out of resources eventually. And then you turn the corner. So in that sense, it's, you're almost like playing a mini control game within your aggro game plan. Yeah. And yeah, that that's definitely like, was a big level up moment for me in like piloting aggro decks. It was like beginning to understand that it's a, it's a 200 IQ, very big brain. So, so here's the question then is what are the pros and cons of specializing as different archetype specialists, or are there any pros and cons? Um, well, so I think one of the main one of the main pros is that um, if you're like an archetype specialist in a game, like if you are the uh, Watchwolf ninety two um, of of aggro of aggro players, right? You you have an edge um, relative to other players of that archetype, right? So people will people will sometimes when they're playing against um, you will make the assumption that you're, they're playing against an average aggro player. When in fact you're playing against Watchwolf and he's going to crush you, because um, he he has a, a higher level understanding of the matchup. Um, that that's what that's one of the pros. Um, I, I found for me when I um, when I specialized in Magic playing Elves, people didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew all the matchups very well, and I was able to capitalize on that. Um, the the con is sometimes archetype specialists can have trouble when they need to pivot to other decks. This is not always true, but this can happen. Um, it, this happens a decent amount in Magic. Yeah, because the more time you invest in a certain into a certain archetype, the less time you are practicing other uh, set archetype. Yep, and like imagine like you're in Throne and you're like a certain you play a certain kind of com you're a Talir combo specialist like almost, and then you're an Expedition. It, it, it can be harder to translate those skills from Throne to Expedition. Not saying it's impossible, but it, it, it could be more of an uphill climb in that sense. Um, and so that's like the main downside. I think being an archetype specialist is super cool. Um, and like, like I'm definitely a fan of mastering a, a deck. I did that in magic. 
Um, I've tried to do that in Eternal. I, I was I played a lot of Kyphus decks when that card first came out, and I, I consider myself a Kyphus master of that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, trust me, I remember. <laughs> I mean, he could. There's a there 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 is a world where he can see some play and some like throne mono shadow shenanigans. I guess, but. But why would you play that card over Akaria, and and then why would you be playing that many six drops? Well, because there are situations if you're where, if you're even. There, there are, well, there are situations on six where you don't want to play Akaria because it doesn't generate you enough value, whereas Kyphus does on that turn. Well, but then, well, but then you can just play like Pale Rider's timepiece on something. Sure, that's what that's why I said there, there's there's a situation where it is playable. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Trust me. I, I, out of all people, I, I really want Kyphus to be playable. That would that would make my day if I could just go and be like, yeah, Kyphus is is a like is a staple of Throne once again. That would make me so happy. I mean, hey, he doesn't die to Jack, so it must be good. <laughs> I, I mean, if they made him cost five, I don't know if that would be broken with haunted haunting scream though. Yeah, we need to not do that. Ah, oh, that would be so much fun. No way! Oh, oh, come on! That'd be so good. Because you, all right? So you play Kyphus, Kyphus <laughs> dies. You haunting scream it back. Dark return it. Now it has almost every keyword in the game. <laughs> that's exactly that's the gameplay I want. That sounds great. I could just be playing Kyphus into Kyphus into more Kyphus into even more Kyphus. Can't possibly go wrong. It's 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 fantastic. To each his own, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that would make Direwolf. If you're listening, anyone from Direwolf is listening, please, please make this happen. I, I, I want Kyphus to cost five, even if, it, even if it became like a, a four or five or something. I, I don't care. Look, if we're on that game plan, then make Wrath of Kyphus cost six. Sure, sure, yeah. I'll still beat you with my Kyphus. Kyphus's Wrath will not be coming from the card Wrath of Kyphus itself, but from me playing actual Kyphus. You can't Kyphus me if your Kyphuses are little seeds. <laughs> it's okay it'll always get ages i don't know what you're talking about actually yeah the amount of times i've played against kyphus and they get a turn one ages and i'm like huh i could have killed that <laughs> and now i can't like back in the day when i would play uh howling peaks i was like okay okay he plays kyphus i have the the, the peaks for it and it got ages <laughs> or it gets like revenge or something or it got quick draw it's like okay literally the only two things that make it unkillable ages and quick draw this <laughs> and then and then and then garden came out and garden says aegis or not aegis says quick draw Psh, i don't care about quick draw <laughs> oh man that's the thing with howling peak that always got me is when like someone had like a quick oh remember um what's it the like five cost four two dude that like uh, gives all your stuff quick draw and the, and like the, the, the pledge one you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah that card that made that card made me really mad when I played Howling Peak because I was just like, oh, well, my the removal option on this card just doesn't work anymore. Wow, gosh darn! I remember that. That that was unfortunate. At least ne- neither of those cards see play anymore, so it's not relevant to like anyone listening. But I, I just had to point it out because I, I when I think of Howling Peaks, not when I think of Gun Down getting turned off, that's like the first thing I think of, mm-hmm. and it infuriates me. It was it was very very frustrating. It's a it's a sad world, unfortunately, but it is it is it is, <laughs> it is, it is a reality that does tend to happen from time to time. Well, I mean, people don't play Howling Peak anymore, so don't make me br- don't make me bring it back. I will bring it back. Oh, 
Oh, if you're going to bring it back, I'll bring it back first. Okay. Just watch, watch, watch out. Watch out. Kyphus Peaks. <laughs> I, I was, the, I, I don't, I don't want to say I was, but I was, I was one of, in back in the day, one of the defining deck builders for, for, for Genev Peaks. Oh yeah. So for I, sure. I, I, I will, I will bring back my boys, Alchi. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I mean, you could play a Rillian supplier in that deck. Like it could exist. Oh, if, man, only, I, if only, I, I if only, you got me thinking. Uh, if only your six cost site didn't just die to Jack. <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, every every site in the game dies to Jack. I'm pretty sure. Isn't I thought the like Rakano one might cost might have five. No, health, I, but I, I don't, don't know. But no one plays that card. It's not good. So who cares? Well, actually, you know, let's let's, let's find that out real quick. Let's find that out. Is there any sites? Let's see. So if I go here and I just type in site, so that has one, three, four, four, or two, two, four, three, three, four. Yeah, uh, Bastion of Dawn. That is the only one, and it's also, <laughs> it's also not the greatest. <laughs> are, are you telling me we're playing Chalice Control? Is that what you're saying? I'm ready. I am one hundred percent ready. Chalice, Chalice will, will will take take my units out of Jack range, and then I'll play Bastion of Dawn, and they'll be like, "Wow, I can't kill any of my opponent's stuff with Jack." Well, they can't. Be <laughs> and that, and that, that, I, that's also true. Well, but like, so like, all your stuff will get buffed by Chalice, and then you'll also have the site that like does nothing but just survives from Jack. So like, wow, very good. That's very good. Wow, I think we broke it. There we go. Chalice <laughs> control, guys. That's this. It's the call. <laughs> Is that our official recommendation? No, Shimmercast no. recommends that you play Chalice Control in every format. I would. I would. <laughs> this is this thing. is the anti Jack Tech. This is like serious advice. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Cthulhu. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just recommending people don't uh don't make silly mistakes like that. <laughs> Why do you assume that this is a mistake? This could be the greatest thing ever. We could break it. That's that's TBD. All right, I'll I'll, I'll just have to prove you wrong then. Yeah, if you prove me wrong on that, I'll prove you wrong on uh, Howling Peaks. All right, this sounds sounds like a deal. All right, it looks like we have gotten through the episode. Wow, that that was longer than I thought it would go, but yeah, pretty we good. Had quite, we had quite a bit to talk about today. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and as we are wrapping up here, uh couple things i want to shout out um the Shimmercast is now on apple podcasts so you can go subscribe on apple podcasts uh that's cool uh, I, for some reason episode two isn't up as of the time of this recording i'm assuming that once we post this episode it'll update the feed and should have all three episodes um but um stay tuned on that um if you haven't already join the Shimmercast discord uh super cool place you can hang out with me kisuji cthulhu uh the boxer uh other great eternal players in that discord uh check it out starting a little community there um and also if you're listening to this podcast you should also listen to the misplay podcast uh super cool podcast i um work on a team with uh the people who create that podcast and other members of that team uh so yeah definitely check that out uh got anything to plug uh, so real quick before I plug my stuff, uh, coming up June 6th, uh, Podcast EG is actually hosting a, uh, uh, a charity tournament, a free-to-play charity tournament mm-hmm. uh, for Eternal. 
It is commons and uncommons only. There will be prize support. Uh, Direwolf just announced that they are going to uh, to uh, uh, put some prizing in as well. So there's also that. Um, once again, it's commons and uncommons only. So literally anyone can get in. There's prizing not only for individual players, but if you have a team, bring your team. If they get enough teams, there will be prizing for teams as well. Not only are you playing a tournament, for free, with prizing, you can get your team's name out there. You're benefiting a good cause, and you're helping to revive the community tournament scene. We need more things like these, so check that out. I also want to shout out my different socials. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, uh, and Discord at TCG Cthulhu. Um, I also, uh, you can also check out my, um, on Twitter, I have linked my, my personal Discord, as well as my team's Discord, so you can come hang out, chat. Um, there is... Almost every single day, there's four or five people in the voice chat of my team's chat, uh, my team's Discord, just hanging out, talking, having a good time. And we'd love to have you guys around there. Um, other than that, I think that's everything I need to shout out. Yeah, you're reminding me. I should plug my Twitter and Twitch. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Doc28CCG. You can also find me on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash Doc28CCG. Pretty consistent. Um, and yeah. Uh, that is about it. Thank you for joining me, Cthulhu. It was a good episode. Always. Yeah. We'll see you guys next week.